0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, we gather before you this morning with grateful hearts for where you've brought us, for drawing us from darkness to life in yourself, and now into this place, into your house. And Father, we have much cause to rejoice and to and to sing for it is indeed our god who who reigns in our lives in our hearts in our minds and in all creation and father even as you are a help to your creation and to your people in in past times, Father, you are our our help in our lives and in these present times, so Father, we joyfully come before you today and uh, commit this time to you and seek your leading and pray that in all things, in the words of our mouths in the meditations of our heart, that you indeed would be worshiped, praised, and glorified. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were here a couple of weeks back, uh, Bill Knudsen um, was was asked to do a reading for us. And it was very encouraging. He reminded us all of our saintly, uh, saintly status and of his love for all of all of us, and I echo those sentiments. and And I'm up here this morning because my love and appreciation for you all continues to grow um, over all these years of uh, serving with you guys. And I'm doing today what is very unnatural for me, um, but it's it's my desire to uh, try to encourage you and to to minister to. Uh, to you all and to encourage you uh, as a fellow member of this body. Um, And as I prepared for this sermon, I felt like one of those, I was watching one of those cooking shows uh, where you have to prepare a meal under the gun. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Uh, Only my process was a lot different than theirs. I would take out every ingredient out of the cupboard, every scrap of food out of the refrigerator, food you didn't need, ingredients you didn't need, all the dishes, I'd start to cook, I'd burn it, I'd scrap it, I'd throw it all away and start again. Um, so kudos to uh, all the pastors and preachers who do this regularly to uh, to minister to us uh, and prepare the word for us week after week. But um, I trust that uh, the Lord's word would not return void and that the spirit will work in you for Uh, encouragement, and edification. So I was saying a couple of weeks back, I spoke with uh, Bill Knudsen um, and was just making some small talk with him before church, and I asked him how he was doing. And uh, he offered an unexpected response. He said, he's enduring. And knowing Bill, I believe I knew where he was coming from And I said, persevering, huh? And then he said, learning. And more than that, he said, I'm learning patience. At times we find ourselves in situations that at at one time seem like very far off and distant issues. um, Things that we wouldn't have to deal with anytime soon. And now those issues are upon us. Kids driving cars. Aging parents. I mean, it goes on and on, but I'm sure you could think of a few examples yourselves. But in those situations, we have to learn. We have to cope. We have to manage and endure And persevere uh, in these situations. And then, just a few minutes later, fresh off Bill's admission to me, he comes up to the podium here and beautifully addresses the body. It was with love and with gratitude and appreciation and really overwhelming enthusiasm. If you were here, you saw it and you can affirm that. I actually wasn't sure if we were going to be able to get Bill off of the podium, off the stage here, so we can continue on with the service. Um, and I'm kidding. Um, and I think we need to hear more from Bill and, and the likes of uh, you other folks more often. But I did find Bill's transparency uh, and insight refreshing, and it gave me good cause for reflection. Which brings me to our topic this morning, which is that topic, as um, Colin referenced earlier, uh, trials. So in consideration of where we are individually and as a body, it's apparent that trials are an ever-present part of our reality. And I I look around this body, um, those who are present and those who are not, and i know some of the hardships that we've endured together over the years and some of the trials that you're currently facing some of these trials include issues pertaining to physical health family relations job instability uncertainties the state of our country death of loved ones Temptations, doubts, fears, anxieties, and probably more uniquely to our pastor daily bearing the burden of caring for the flock. And I'm sure we could go on and on about uh, the trials that we face in our lives. And although trials are an ever-present part of our reality, for the Christian, there is a way to approach trials that differs vastly from the world's approach. So my aim was to identify what might be needful for our body at this moment, and at a basic level, provide some insight um, or reminders pertaining to trials, and through examination of, of the word, better understand and hopefully improve our mindset and our approach to trials. So for this morning, I wanted to briefly touch on a a few specific areas uh, and you'd find them in your outline, namely uh, the promise and preparation of trials, rightly regarding and responding to trials, and lastly, the role of the body in trials. So considering trials we can confidently affirm that when we first believed, our newfound hope and calling to life in Christ did not afford us immunity from trials. Our salvation did not grant us unwavering faith, remove all fears, liberate us from temptations, or extend to us any exemptions from life's hardships. In fact, as Christians, we are subject to all the same struggles that can be found in the world and arguably more. So with respect to trials, what is it that separates the believer from the unbeliever? There's an expectation for those who have faith and trust in God and who possess the hope of eternal life, To live and respond as those who indeed have faith, trust, and hope, right? But this got me thinking how do other people typically respond to trials? So, after doing a little online research, I discovered a few common tactics or strategies that people employ to deal with trials. So see if you can relate to any of these um, and maybe identify any errors in these approaches. All right, so the first approach that I found was escapism. It was defined as an attempt to avoid trials by occupying life with distractions, hobbies, and entertainment. Next was optimism. The optimistic approach states that things will eventually evolve into a better life, Of course, there are temporary setbacks, but just wait it out, and things will improve on their own. Fatalism. What will be, will be. All thinking, worrying, planning, strategizing will not change anything. More commonly stated, it is what it is. It's the ever popular just throwing your hands up approach then we have avoidance just refuse to think about problems and hope that they go away and then, lastly we have the psychological method this is the positive thinking approach toward problem solving where peace of mind is the goal not necessarily a change in circumstances we just need to think happy thoughts it's, it's really a denial that there's even a problem at all. So whether unconsciously um, or, or not, I'm sure some of these trials sound familiar, uh, but each of these tactics are failed attempts to try to resolve trials. Why? Why are these failed attempts? I would argue that they offer no remedies Grant no joy or lasting satisfaction. And the greatest criticism of them is that the problem remains. And the solution is still left to the individual. So let's ask the question, how do you currently respond to trials in your life? Do you typically respond as the world does? Or do you more often respond as kingdom citizens? Trials are nothing new to us. But perfecting a right response to them takes practice. First, we have to come to the understanding that they are assured. And we should expect them. In in John's Gospel, and we'll be looking at chapter 14 if you wanted to Um, Follow along. We'll be jumping around between 14 and 15 a little bit. Jesus begins to prepare the disciples for his departure, encouraging them the best way possible. Of course, it's not that Jesus had any limitations in preparing them. All the limitations were on the disciples and their ability to receive his preparatory guidance. So in chapter 14, we see that Jesus informs them, he reminds them, he prepares them, giving them all the help and assurance they would need in his absence. How did he prepare them? And I'm, I'm sorry for, for all the rhetorical questions. I, I think I read too much J.C. Ryle, and he has that pattern of asking the question and answering it himself, and I think that just resonates with me. Anyway, a... Brief rundown of Jesus' encouragement to the disciples can be found in verses 1 through 3. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus had been telling them that he was going to be leaving for for some time now. And in chapter 14, he was very deliberate to encourage them. He tried to break the news to them delicately. He applied a, a good parental strategy here by mixing in some of the good news uh, in with the bad news. And in verse 3, he first states the bad news, that he's leaving. But he says it just the one time. And compare that to the, the good news that he gives, stating that he will come back. And he states that he will come back three different ways. He says he will come back. I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may also be. He's being sensitive to their feelings and very deliberate to provide them with accurate information concerning their future. They will be together again. So that should uh, be some encouraging and and calming uh, and reassuring news to them. And it made me... Think about a child that's getting dropped off at daycare. um, And they're visibly upset because mom and dad are are leaving. So what does the parents say? Uh, They assure the child that they'll be back in a little while and that their time apart will be brief. And Jesus says the same thing and further encourages them. uh, And we see it in verse 18 I will not leave you as orphans I will return why the attempt to comfort them why would they be troubled and I know I'm stating the obvious here but these are disciples of Jesus they're followers of the Messiah and the Lord they've They've really come to depend on him. They've abandoned their former lives at much risk and much cost. And they've essentially put all their eggs in in one basket with him. And there's no backup plan. What did Peter say when many followers were abandoning Jesus? And Jesus asked him, do you want to go away as well? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. They had witnessed Jesus in action for years now and saw his power on display when he calmed the seas, when he healed the lame, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Beyond that, they saw him perform many miracles to the point that the conclusion of John's gospel says, There were so many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the Jesus that was leaving them. them. Yes, they had cause for concern. And I'm sure they were wondering how they would, or even if they could, manage without him. In Rocky 3, Rocky's aging coach, Mick, was always in his corner, which gave him confidence. Before his fight with Clubber Lang, Mick dies. And sorry for the the spoiler, if if you hadn't seen it. But Rocky was shaken to his core and had doubts about whether he could carry on without his main guy. It's a It's a bad example, I apologize. But but the disciples were shaken as well. They were understandably sorrowful and confused at the thought of Jesus leaving them. They were wondering how they were going to get along without their main guy. Jesus assures them, uh, down in verse 16, that they wouldn't be left alone, that he would leave them another helper. Who is this helper? They might have been wondering. What helper could the Lord provide that could offer the most support and supply the most comfort? This isn't a trick question. The comforter. Um, In John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father shall send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. It's almost as if he knows we are forgetful people who need constant reminding. Additionally, he reminds them that he loves them, and he encourages them to abide, to remain in him, to love one another, and to obey his commandments. He's essentially saying, I'm leaving, you stay the course. He promises them peace. In verse 27, and then he even sort of promotes them as he informs them that they will continue the Father's work in his absence. They're going to abide in him and bear fruit. It's as if they've been in training all along, and that's exactly where they've been. And now it's graduation time. You are no longer servants. You are friends. And I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear much fruit. It's time to put all that training to the test and prove to be my disciples. After processing his words, I can only imagine what the disciples were thinking. Yeah, maybe we're not thrilled that you're going away, but we're glad to know that you're coming back, and it's good to know that you're not leaving us alone and that you're sending help, that you love us, we're friends, we have each other, got it. Maybe we'll be okay with the scenario that you've just laid out. And then Jesus says, right, there's a little more here, though. Because of the love you have for one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. Oh, and by the way, the world is going to hate you, just FYI. I don't think Jesus really said FYI, kids, I'm kind of So there is your assurance of trials. As Christians, there are many promises in the Bible that we love to quote. That all things will work together for good. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. That in Christ you will have an abundant life. A less popular one being in this world you will have tribulations. I say these things to remind us that as trials were promised to the disciples, so are they promised to us. And as Jesus prepared the disciples for trials, so has he prepared us for trials. So if we know then that trials are assured that they're inevitable and unavoidable, then we can prepare to think and act on them in a Christianly manner. Which brings us to our next point, rightly regarding and responding to trials. We see that for the believer, trials are assured, but they're oftentimes misunderstood. Naturally thinking, they're regarded as unwelcome nuisances and are considered Inconvenient, burdensome, hurtful, and painful. I don't know anyone who who purposely pursues trials. On the contrary, each of us seeks relief from, from life's struggles. Trials are the foes of a quiet, carefree life that we desire, but that we're not promised. We are, however, promised Various trials and tribulations, and though they're inevitable and undesirable, it's important that we regard and respond to them rightly. Failing to do so can result in missed opportunities for spiritual growth, service, or encouragement to the body, or to glorifying God. So, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, and this is where we'll spend the lion's share of our time this morning, we'll see what James. Uh, had to say on on the topic. Uh, we're going to read verses one through twelve. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various. The first thing that we can observe in James chapter 1 is the absence of a lengthy introduction. The author only stating here who the letter is addressed to. In this case, it's the scattered Messianic Jews. Aside from that, he's very blunt and takes us straight into the topic of trials. There's no mincing words, simply an acknowledgement of trials that are to be encountered, and then wise advice for living faithfully to Jesus. And it's very direct. It's a very godly and wise perspective on how to rightly regard trials. Verse 2 states, Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. And then in verse 12 we read, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. So we can see that this section, verses 2 through 12, are about trials. Therefore, when we read in verses 5 through 8, Um, about asking for wisdom, it's set against the, the backdrop of trials. And when we read verses 9 through 11 about the rich and the poor, it too is in that same context of trials. And it's important for us to read this passage through these lenses so that we maintain that right perspective for facing adversity, hardship, Opposition, suffering, and persecution in what James calls various trials. So the question is how are we to respond to trials if we're going to remain faithful to Jesus? How do we respond to the adversities in life? And the answer given here in James is essentially threefold: rejoice, ask for wisdom, and adopt an eternal perspective when he states in verse 2 that we should count it all joy um, in some readings maybe you read consider it all joy consider it all joy when we encounter various trials we should take notes note of those words count and consider those are, are thinking words they are perspective words and it's really a command James is telling us here to consider our trials as joy. He's commanding us how to think and what perspective to have when facing trials. Saints, we can't control or change our circumstances per se, but we can control our mind and how we think about our circumstances and how we regard these trials. And so James here is exhorting us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. The word joy can be defined as cheerfulness, calm delight, and gladness. Joy is a state of being and a central virtue for the Christian life. We see elsewhere in the New Testament when unbelievers became believers that one of the distinguishing characteristics of conversion was joy. And in Galatians uh, chapter 5, one of the pieces of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And Philippians 4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. God wants us to be joyful. And as confounding as it may sound, life's trials are an opportunity for joy. And biblical joy can be defined as contentment in Christ despite the circumstances. And joy is different from happiness. Happiness is always connected to our circumstances, But joy is a fruit of the Spirit and something that grows out of participating with Christ and the byproduct of faith. It's rooted in knowing that God is at work in all things and that his promises are all true, which is entirely accurate. He is. Um, So looking at verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or patience those words for you know it's an indicator it, it indicates that there's some knowledge that you have an understanding of things to come something to anticipate a confidence that there is a benefit to perceive or a favorable outcome to envision it may not always look like what we envision it to uh, to look like but there is a favorable outcome. Paul, in the book of Philippians, can rejoice in his sufferings and imprisonment because he knows something. He knows that the Lord is using his imprisonment for his glory and for his purposes, and he is confident that even if the worst happens, even if he dies, that he will be with Christ, which is his heart's truest longing. That's what it looks like to endure trial by faith. And it's through this process that we are made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And we'd be wise to not get hung up on the word perfect. Um, Through the refining process of trials, we will become mature. We will be made whole and complete and the complete people that we're called to be. And that's not to say that we will be perfect in every way, um, um, that we won't sin, but we understand that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And that's exactly what he's doing. We have to trust the process So to reiterate, the basic advice in in verses 2 through 4 is to count it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know they are serving to help you become the person God created you to be. So moving further through James chapter 1 and and still on that topic of trials, uh, verses 5 through 8 touches on the topic of how to respond through trials. We know that this sanctification process is ongoing and that a learning process is involved. We're not yet perfected. We need support. We need guidance. Verses 2 through 4 end with being complete, lacking nothing. But here in verse 5, the writer approaches this subtopic saying, if you are tried and you lack wisdom what should you do? Verse 5 answers the question, let him ask God. It says, let him ask God and he will give your prayers and request thoughtful consideration. Just checking to, to see if that's what it actually says. Of course, it does not say that. Um, what it does say is that he will give wisdom. Beyond that, he says he will give it generously. And not only does he say that he will give wisdom generously, but that he will do so without reproach. And that means he doesn't fault you, he doesn't blame you, or think less of you for asking. He wants you to ask. He genuinely desires that you bring your prayers and petitions to him. Unlike those random disingenuous brainstorming sessions you hear about in the corporate world uh, where they encourage you to ask questions and they tell you that there are no such thing as a dumb question, um, but you know that they don't mean it because, that, because you know that your questions are probably really dumb uh, and you know that they're going to make fun of you later for it. You, God doesn't work that same way. When God says, um, ask me, he wants you to ask him. He says, let the little children come to me. And just thinking about when a little kid comes up to you and asks you the most obvious question, it's just, it's really, it's so cute oftentimes, and you, you condescend to him, and you give him the, the sweetest answer you can, just knowing he's just a kid. He doesn't know anything. And we're all just children who don't know anything either. No reproach, no judgment, no chastisement, Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Ask for wisdom, and he will give wisdom, and he will give it generously. That's true. But there's a condition in the asking, a prerequisite to receiving the wisdom. And we should note that wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is based on information and facts, but you may not know what to do with that knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to know what to do with the information that you have and the ability to live skillfully, to make good decisions, and to pursue the correct course of action. So if you're wondering what the best choice to make is, what you should do, verse 6 says, ask God. But when you ask, ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that purpose must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ladies, you're not off the hook. When times are tough, we are all tempted to shake. Um, well, and when times are tough, and we are tempted to shake our fists in frustration to God for allowing these hardships in our lives, and we're ready to begin to employ some of those natural-minded strategies that we talked about earlier, because God just isn't getting it done. By our estimation of things, this is what it means to be double-minded and unstable. This is what it means to doubt, which at its core is to be at odds with oneself. And one has to do more with this internal conflict as opposed to uh, a settled trust that we have in God. And this is where we need to learn obedience through the things we suffer, even as Jesus did. So from an eternal perspective, when confronted with trials, we can consider it joy when we look ahead to the outworking of this trial. We are aware of how God operates that he is intending to use these hardships to test us and strengthen us and to refine us and to shape us into our future glory selves. With this perception and foreknowledge, we know that God is using this trial for our good. For our good and, and for his glory. We are then able to rightly regard and to respond accordingly. And the uh, the last point that I want to make today, and this will be brief, is that our trials are not meant to be ours alone. I said earlier that as Christians we are subject to all the same uh, struggles that can be found in the world, and arguably more. In Christ, in the church, we are called to bear one another's burdens. Christianity is a team sport. In the world, there's no expectation and no obligation to look out for your neighbor. In fact, by the world's estimation of things, the every man for himself approach is perfectly acceptable. Nowhere does it say that people have to love you and to look after you. At a minimum, one is considered a good citizen if they do not harm anyone. You are and I quote-unquote, good if you do nothing. We have not learned Christ this way. John 13 says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children... Jesus loved his disciples, he taught them, he served them, he gave his life for them, and this is the example that that we are to follow. It was the example Paul followed, and he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Saints, we demonstrate our association with Jesus and with the body when we love one another, when we serve each other. And live out the life of Christ together with unity. As those who bear the fragrance of Christ, as iron sharpens iron, as the body causing the growth of the body, not only do we bear one another's burdens, which lightens our affliction, but in the serving of one another, we let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and they glorify our Father who is in heaven. Bearing one another's burdens is our service to one another and our witness to the world for God's glory. Acts uh, 2.44 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is how we live faithfully as God's people, as kingdom citizens and as the church. It's... It's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to be transparent with one another. It's, it's hard to ask for help. I don't know why it is, but we, we prefer to suffer alone. When we isolate ourselves within the church, and we do not ask for help, and we do not offer help, we withhold the power of God to work blessings in our lives and for those around us who, who need it the most. For a lot of people, their church experience is one where there's little to no involvement in each other's lives between Sundays. And that's really a shame. As um, shares in this life of faith, we're, we're called to love one another. And we can't love one another if we don't help one another or allow ourselves to receive help. In this way, we act like the church as we labor to make every man complete, mature, and perfect in Christ. More and more, um, if we do this, more and more do we become what the church looks like in truth. We can't make too much of his church, but I do believe we can make uh, we can regard it too little. Um, so I'm going to conclude with this. Here, um, we started off this morning by re- being reminded that uh, of God's promise that in this world you will have tribulation, and I pray that uh, peace and joy joy will prevail. Um, as he reminds us to take heart that I have overcome the world. We know the trials are ever present, but we do not need to lament them as the world does. We should purpose to rightly regard and respond to our trials and remember that we're not alone. We have a helper in the Holy Spirit, the comforter to remind us and to give us wisdom generously. <clears throat> And, of course, we have one another. <clears throat> I'm thankful for you all. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> and I learn a lot from you guys. Um, I learned from Bill, and I'm glad he's not here today, sort of, to uh, th- that I don't have to embarrass him, but um, I learned from him the other day when he shared his heart. Um, um, I, I learned when I talked with our brother uh, Cliff Ball recently, who, um, along with his family, is enduring a a difficult time uh, with the loss of their young granddaughter um, and, and it 's a really hard time for them. you know I, I told him, you know i can 't understand why this happens um, and he had a wonderful response he said the Lord will mostly tell us how, where, when, and how often, <clears throat> but very rarely the why, because that deals with his sovereignty and where our faith and trust in him is tested. And that's uh, so true. It's not our duty to know and understand everything perfectly in the moment, but it is our duty to Holy trust in Him and to allow His Spirit to lead us and to remind us of His Word. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this morning, for for those that are are present, for those that that are not with us. We thank you that you've called us to to life in you and to um, be this body and to do this life of faith together. And Father, we know that times will be will be hard. There'll be things that. We don't understand and that our finite minds will never fully grasp this side of eternity. But I pray that even as we had looked into your word today that that you have an answer for us. That you have a plan for us. And that our hope can rightly be placed in you. And that Peace and joy can be ours in all circumstances. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the gift of the body uh, that uh, you have brought together to to walk this journey of faith uh, together. May we love you as we ought. May we love one another as we ought. And may we be the church that you've called us to be, for our benefit, for for the world's benefit, uh, for your name's sake, and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.